0: Good morning, everyone. Before we get into a time in the Word of God this morning, we want to take some time to recognize a dear servant of ours that is with us for the last time today. And so I would like the elders to come up and join me, and I want to invite Tom Hammonds to come up. Tom has been serving in EFC and OCS for a number of years. He was director, he was teacher, he was an elder here, he's a worship leader, has been a great contributor to our Sunday school classes, has just been a blessing. But it is time for him to take that last final journey to the East Coast to rejoin his wife once and for all and for good. And so as Cindy has already been moved out there for a couple of years, Tom is finally finishing up and is going out that way. And so we want to First of all, Tom, we want to present to you a gift on behalf of the elders, thanking you for your years of service with us. And as you go out th- after the service, if you have not already done so, as you go out to the left, there's a table with a bunch of cards on it, and it says, Thank you, Tom. Take some time to sign one of the cards, put a little note on it. We'll collect them all and make sure that they go out to Tom and Cindy as an appreciation of what they've meant to us over the years. But we thought as he is leaving us, As a faithful servant, we want to send him off with our blessing, and so I invite you to join with us as we pray and commit our brother into the Lord's hands as he travels. So Father, we want to thank you for the many years of faithful service that you have operated through the Hammonds family here. Father, indeed, we are richer because of the fellowship and friendship that we've had with Tom and Cindy and their beloved family. And, Father, we thank you that you have now made a way for Tom to be with Cindy now full-time. You've opened that pathway for them once again to be together day by day to continue to serve you as a couple, as we saw them do so many years here. And so, Lord, would your hand of favor just rest upon Tom and the Hammonds family? Would you continue to use them for your glory? Father, would you be pleased to grant travel mercies and times of fellowship with your spirit as he travels now from coast to coast. And Father, I pray that he would sense your favor and our love as he leaves because, Father, we're asking for you to send him out and to prepare the way before him and to prepare places of service for him in North Carolina where he'll be a blessing, a continued blessing to the family of God there. Father, thank you that we can trust you, Thank you for this lovely family. May your blessing fall upon them now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's express our appreciation to Tom. Thanks, man. I hope you'll take a moment at this time to make sure your cell phones are turned off. As we're live streaming, we want to make sure there aren't any interruptions. And for those of you joining us online, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you that wherever you are, you can be with us as we open the Word of God together and as His Spirit guides and leads us. So I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word, wherever you might be, to Matthew chapter 15. As the Apostle Paul was writing his magnus opus, his great work, what we know as Paul's letter to the Romans... He took great care to show that all people are guilty before God because of their sin and rebellion against his holiness and against his law and his love. First, Paul in Romans chapter 1 shows how sinful and guilty the Gentiles are, that they have rebelled against God, that by nature they're opposed to him and they're going off after all kinds of sins, and so the judgment that God has against them is just. Then, when we get to chapter 2, he will take on the self righteous and the Jews, and he says, You as well are guilty before God because you've not kept the law of God. You've not walked in the ways of God. And so he summarizes in chapter 3 then that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the middle of that little passage, he explains what I think is the core and the heart of the gospel Romans 3 21 to 26 is perhaps the core of the core of the Bible message, of how God is justifying sinners for his glory. Well, as he continues in chapter 3, he gets to verse 28, and he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, he's going somewhere as he makes this argument because he's dealing with a church in Rome that is half Jewish, at least, a half Ro- a half. Gentile, and how are they going to live together? But first he has to establish the boundaries and the guidelines. So he goes on in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And he answers, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now I'm belaboring that point a little bit in my introduction this morning, Because the Apostle Paul has captured well the intent and the focus of the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus, who was born among the Jews, born under the law, came to fulfill the law and the prophets of God and to live out the perfect righteousness that God requires for the salvation of sinners. And as part of that great plan, formed in the mind of God in eternity past, God desires to save people from all types of backgrounds and situations and people groups, and that includes the Gentiles. Well, this thought from Paul, I think, prepares us well for the passage we're going to look at today, Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39. Now, as we saw last week in the passage that preceded this one, that Jesus has left Galilee for a brief period of ministry among Gentiles. And we saw this dramatic encounter that he had with a Canaanite woman who, in fact, turns out to be an example of true faith as she came to Jesus and pled her case and pled to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the table of the master, that there was an understanding that the the gospel would go first to the Jew, but it wouldn't stay there, it would go to the Gentile. And as that door is starting to open up in the ministry of Jesus, we have this image of this Canaanite woman who comes and pleads with Jesus and she honor, he honors her faith and her daughter is healed. Well, Jesus continues today with a ministry among the Gentiles and in doing so, he will have do many of the same things that we have already seen him do among the people of Israel in the land of Galilee, the region of Galilee. But now he's going to do many of those same things among Gentiles. And so with all of that as a background, with Paul's look, reminder that God is God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, that all are saved by faith. I invite you to stand in honor of God as we read his word in the passage that we will study today, Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39. And the beautiful and holy word of God says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, And have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord given to us by God, the Holy Spirit. Let us receive it for its intended purpose. Please be seated. And let us pray. To you, O Lord, we now turn because we recognize our great need of you as our teacher and as our guide. And Father, we all bring in this morning temptations and worries and passions and desires And we know we need to channel those things now and lay them at your feet and allow you to teach us, allow you to guide us. And so we commit this moment into your hands because we need you to be at work so that we not just go through a basic exercise of reading and writing, but that we actually hear from the living God. So teach us in these moments, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. you follow along in your sermon outline we get to our first major point this morning which is clamoring and healing clamoring and healing and our passage begins with these words jesus went on from there and walked beside the sea of galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down there we've just seen where he has healed the daughter of this canaanite woman who was oppressed by demons and jesus sets her free as he responds to the faith of this woman and now he continues on his journey with a walk around the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He has left the district of Tyre and Sidon, and the complementary passage in Mark chapter 7 says that he went to the region of the Decapolis. Now this, the word Decapolis is a compound word. The word, it has two words. First is polis, which is the word for city and deka, which is the Greek word for ten. And so you see where we get Decapolis, meaning the region of ten or the cities of ten. And the Decapolis then was a league of ten cities on the, in the region east of the Jordan River. It was composed predominantly of Gentiles and was largely outside of Jewish control. It's an area that's found today in modern-day Jordan and Syria. And there are several clues in our passage that indicate that these events are taking place in Gentile territory. The first is that Mark chapter 7 tells us that Jesus went to that side of the, the, the Sea of Galilee. He went to the region of the Decapolis. Second, the reaction of the crowd that we will see in Matthew fifteen thirty-one says, glory to the God of Israel. That saying is never recorded as being said in Israel itself, but it certainly is fitting with events that happen in Gentile territory. Third, the story concludes with Jesus leaving that area, getting in a boat and crossing back over the Sea of Galilee to the western side. So if he's arriving on the western side, we can at least surmise that he has left the eastern side to get there. Now, I'm emphasizing the Gentile nature of what is happening here because it's a key, I think, to understanding what is going on in this section of the gospel according to Matthew. And so our text begins where it says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up on the mountain and sat down. Now, where have we heard those words before? We've heard them in Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and it goes on with the, with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here is assuming the role of a teacher the role of a prophet as he goes up on the mountain, where lots of important things happen and encounters with God in his holy word, and he begins to teach. At least it seems it should be a time of teaching. It quickly, however, turns into a time of healing and the performing of miracles, as we see clearly in our next subpoint. "Great are their needs. Great are their needs." And we continue in verse 30, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. Now, Matthew seems to like doing this. He seems to like giving us little clusters of miracles as a way of summarizing what Jesus has done in a particular region or during a particular period of time in his ministry. And so it's probably a summary then of what has happened in in his ministry here in Gentile lands, but certainly it's a summary of what he did on this occasion. And notice it wasn't just crowds, but great crowds. Jesus did not need to go looking for people to heal or to touch. No, like in so many other occasions, word begins to get out. It gets out quickly and people begin to share that Jesus is with us and they bring with them those who are sick. Notice it is the great crowds who bring with them. It is those who are well who bring those who are unwell. It is the healthy who brings those who are unhealthy. And who do they bring? And we have a list of the types of people that were being brought, the maladies that they were afflicted with, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. We're going to see a great display of the messianic power of Jesus. The word for lame typically refers to problems with the lower extremities of the body, but can be used to refer to all of the appendages of the body. The blind, of course, are those who cannot see. Now, the word for crippled here is very similar to the word for lame. In fact, they sound almost the same in Greek. But this one takes on a more comprehensive role. It it encompasses any abnormality or incapacity of the human body. The word for mute, mute here is one who cannot speak, but often that includes obviously one who cannot hear. And so we fear the drama building. Here is this healer. Here is this Messiah, this compassionate one. The crowds are gathering, and they're bringing with them those that are in need. This is a very unhealthy group. They are experiencing some of the worst effects of living in a sinful world. Now it is not the case that every physical ailment is the direct result of a sin on your part or on mine, but it is true that all sin ultimately, all, all sickness is ultimately the result of Adam's sin. Of the fall of transgression into the world. And that is why all of us are born sinners, because we inherit that same condition. He, as our Father, has brought that condition, and so we are born sinners, but then we prove over and over and over again that we're also sinners by our actual actions. And so, here's the drama. The crowds bring these great group of people in desperate need, and they put them... At his feet. Now it's interesting. Matthew wants to draw our attention because the word that is used for to put here can mean to throw down or to cast down. In fact, when Judas betrayed the Savior and took the 30 pieces of silver and experienced his gift, his guilt, I should say, he cast down the silver into the temple. It's the same word that's used here. When Paul was on his way to Rome, And the ship upon which they were traveling was buffeted by a storm. We are told that the sailors took their tackle and cast it into the sea. It's the same word that's used here. Now, do I think that we're to see violence here? That they're coming and just violently throwing the sick at Jesus' feet? No, but I think what it shows is the tremendous energy, emotion that was present as they're bringing their desperate loved ones to place them at the feet of Jesus. There's urgency here. And just imagine the scene after ca- traveling some distance, perhaps carrying someone on a cart or on the back of a donkey, even on your own back. You, you come and the crowd is growing ever larger, very rapidly, and you're desperate to bring your sick one to the feet of Jesus. The jostling that's going on, the competition, the weaving in and out of these masses of people as they try to get to the feet of Jesus. This was no orderly procession of customer service whereby each person takes a number and waits his turn in line. No, there was real human drama going on here as people are waiting and desperately trying to get their loved ones to the feet of Jesus. It was chaotic. It was boisterous. It was noisy. It was an active scene. Great are their needs. And yet, as we see, greater is the Savior greater is the Savior. And with just a simple summary, Matthew says, and he healed them. One after another is brought before him with various ailments of different kinds, and one after another Jesus heals him. And we're not told how. how. We're not told that he touched them, did he speak to them, did he lift them up. We don't know. It just says that he healed them. And it was such a great and dramatic event that The crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. The crowd is seeing what's happening. Loved ones are seeing their sick loved ones healed and made whole and healthy right in front of them. The mute are speaking. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? For the first time, someone's able to speak and and listen to their story and then listen to the praises that are going to be poured out to God as lips are loosened and ears are opened and tongues are empowered to speak. Imagine people who were crippled suddenly being healthy, working as their bodies were designed to. The lame who, had, who arrived being carried by someone or on something suddenly jumping around with joy. The blind beholding the faces of their loved ones, perhaps for the first time. Tendons being restored, nerve endings being reconnected, muscles being re-strengthened, broken bodies knitted together to be made whole by this greater Savior who is able to heal. And imagine as the scene unfolds, you see some rising and shouting for joy and crying out in joy and delight, while others are still crying out in agony and say, it's my turn, Lord. Let me be the next one. And they're being put at his feet and how this is going on for some time. We wonder then, with all that is going on how John the Baptist could have been in a position of doubt we read about his story a few chapters ago how he was languishing in a Roman prison and he said if you're really the Messiah why am I in prison and we recall the answer that Jesus sent to him which was a confirmation of what happened in those days and what happens on this day where Jesus is saying in essence John remember the Bible remember the promises of the Messiah remember what would happen and gives a listing of the healings that would take place in the ministry of the Messiah. Stop doubting, John, but rejoice and believe. And the similar story then would go out, perhaps to those that were doubting, perhaps to those that felt separated, those that felt distant from what is happening. Just look at what is happening, ponder, and believe. We've mentioned this a few times already, but it it bears mentioning because it's such a prominent theme in the gospel, according to Matthew, that in the Old Testament, only God could give sight to the blind. And yet the prophets made clear that the sign of the Messiah would be the first powerful sign would be the giving of sight to the blind. In fact, that was the one miracle that Jesus performed more than any other, giving sight to the blind. He's making it very clear who he is, what he has come to do, what's the impact of his ministry And we're reminded then, as we see this powerful summary of what Jesus has done, we're reminded of the promise that was given long before through the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35. Sorry, there's a misprint there. It's 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you not hear these words resonating in the background of the passage that we've just read? As all of these miracles are being performed to show that this Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised. That's why we sang John Wesley's hymn this morning because it it puts to song the words of this prophecy that all of these things will happen. The crowd see all that is happening and they see that the Messiah has come, that he is greater than their need, and so they give glory to God. And so we're told that the crowd wondered and they glorified the God of Israel. They marveled at what they were seeing, bodies put back together, lives being restored. They hear the shouts of praise. They see the dances of joy, and the crowd raises their voices in an ever-increasing crescendo of joyful tears, shouts of relief, deep and grateful emotional embraces, and praises poured out to God. They glorified the God of Israel. They recognized that the power of Jesus had come, and it, it could only, Jesus could only perform these miracles because he was doing it by the power of God. And because this story is building on what we saw last week when Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we see that the promises that were given to the line of Abraham are, are overflowing now to the nations. The, it's beginning It will grow throughout church history, but it's beginning as these blessings overflow through this line of which Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham. Yes, salvation may come out of Zion, but it will not stay there. So if we have seen the Lord at work, if we we have seen him answer our prayers, if we have seen the salvation of loved ones, if we've seen healing and restoration then let us be those who raise their voices and give glory to God because the blessings that began in Israel have reached all the way to us and after we have seen the clamoring and the healing we get to our second major point which is multiplying and feeding multiplying and feeding now there are three main stories in Matthew chapter 15 and you notice they all have some reference to food and the first one, Jesus is asked, well, if we, if you wash your hands, but not according to the ritualistic practices of, of the tradition of the elders, does that make you unclean? And Jesus says, no. It's not the ritualistic traditions of men that make you unclean. It is your unclean heart. Therefore, we, we can eat whatever we desire. And the second one, the Canaanite woman asks for the crumbs to fall from the master's table so that her daughter might be healed. And Jesus responds. And in the third now, Jesus is getting ready to set the table, as it were, now for another large group of people, in this case the Gentiles, 4,000 of them. The crumbs of the table that have fallen from the master's table will now begin to become an abundance of bread that will flow to the nations. We're seeing then that, again, this table fellowship is a sign of intimacy as God is showing that he is drawing and longing for his people to be in intimate fellowship with him. And so we have the, the feeding of the 4,000 today. And we know that there are some similarities to the feeding of the 5,000. And so let's look at some of the similarities. In both cases, obviously, there are large crowds. We are given the number of men, not including the women and children. They're both very large crowds. In both cases, they happen in a desolate place. In both cases, Jesus shows compassion to the people, but the disciples are not quite as with it, and they're showing more concern about the logistics and the lack of supplies. And Jesus feeds the crowd and sends them away. Those are the, some of the similarities. But there are some major differences, and it's good for us to notice the differences Because there are, in fact, two different stories here. So what are some of those differences between the 5,000 and the 4,000? Well, the location is different. Though they both happen around the Sea of Galilee, they do not happen at the exact same point. Some of the numbers are different. There's a different number of people present. There's 5,000 on the one. There's 4,000 on the other. There's five loaves and two fish on the one. There's seven loaves and a few fish on the other. There's a different number of baskets that are used at the end. There's 12 and there's 7. There's actually a different word for basket that is used in each case. In Matthew 14, where we have the feeding of the 5,000 among the Jews, the typical Jewish word for basket is used. But here in chapter 15, there's a different word that is used for basket. In fact, it's the same word that was used when Paul was lowered from a basket when he was stuck in Damascus and was lowered from the city wall to escape the king. The time of the year is different. In Matthew 14, the people are sitting on green grass. Here, they're just sitting on the ground. Perhaps this was after the time of the rains and after everything had browned out. We, we kind of know something about that here in Northern California. After the grass is green, after the rains, it tends to brown out with time. The timing is also different. And the feeding of the 5,000, you'll recall that Jesus left the boat and the crowd looked to where he was going because we said, after all, looking down from the mountain out over the Sea of Galilee, you could determine in what direction they were going. And they raced around the side of the lake to get to the destination and they met him when he arrived on the shore. And he began to teach them and he fed them and healed them all on the same day. But here, very clearly, this crowd has been with him three days. And so we're dealing with different Similar, but different incidences. But I think the kicker is that Jesus himself affirmed both events. And so those that would take issue with what Jesus may or may not have done, let them just simply deal with Jesus himself. As for me and my house, <laughs> we'll listen to what Jesus says. Now Matthew has made little mention of the phrase here, he went up on the mountain and sat down. But as we said in our introduction, this would have been a time of teaching as well as healing. And it went on for three days. And I think we would long just to have been an observer of what was going on during those three days. Imagine the teaching. Imagine the interaction. Imagine the healings. Imagine the shouts of praise that are going on. It would have been difficult for people to want to leave. What a great display of power, both in teaching of wisdom and in performance of miracles would have been difficult for the people to even drag themselves away because after all, this is literally the greatest show on earth. And so after he's had these displays of healing provision among the Jews, which we read about, we're going to see a similar display now among the Gentiles. We're going to see that he is the Savior of the world, that he came to be the Savior of all peoples, and that he is the compassionate Messiah, the compassionate Messiah. As we continue in verse 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus is showing that he will be the Messiah for all types of people, for all nations. And if you'll notice during the time of the announcements as we're asking you to already begin to pray for our all-church missionary conference, the theme of the conference is salvation for every nation because that's the, the heartbeat of the gospel, of the scriptures that God will be proclaimed and glorified in every people group, in every corner of the world. going to fulfill the law and the prophets Jesus is and at least it's a, it's an interesting parallel make of it what you will but as Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets it's interesting that Moses who in a sense is the epitome of the law also performed two great feedings as we see in Exodus 16 and Numbers 11 not was not him but it was God who did it but through him And in the life of Elisha the prophet, he also performed two healing miracles involving food. So I find it interesting then that Matthew, at least in, in close proximity one to another, is drawing attention to a second major feeding of Jesus. The text tells us that Jesus called the disciples and expressed his concern for the crowds. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days, their supplies are exhausted. Whatever they brought with them is now done. Everything is depleted. To To send them away now would have been hazardous. Far away from the villages with no food or water. He even feared that they might faint on the way. And so, like a good Middle Eastern host that he is, he says he is not willing to send them away unless he has fed them. And we had the privilege of experiencing that over 16 years in Jordan where everything happened around food. And people would invite us, and they insisted we not leave until they had fed us, until they had given us to drink. And it was a sign of fellowship. So Jesus, here he is as the host, to say, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. I will feed them, because he is the compassionate Messiah. But in contrast, we see the confused disciples. The confused disciples. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread? In such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd. Once again, we contrast the compassion of Jesus with the confusion of the disciples. They show more concern about logistics, they're more worried about supply chain issues than they are about the supplier. And they feel helpless. How are we to get enough to feed this whole crowd? Where are we possibly to get enough bread? Perhaps they're thinking, look, they came on their own accord. Just send them off. Let them take care of themselves. After all, we've we've been taking care of them during this time. They've experienced Jesus for three days. Let them go off and take care of themselves. And we feel the sting that they still not truly learned who Jesus is and what he can do. Maybe they haven't fully realized who they are yet either. They've forgotten what they've already seen or they didn't understand what they have seen. They've seen the first miracle of the feeding of the masses. They've heard about a Savior talk about the difference between what is clean and unclean. They've been with him now for some time, and they, they, but they're still not quite getting it. They're facing a great need, but they forget that they're in the presence of the great I Am, the one who calmed the seas, the one who could raise the dead, the one who is the bread of life. You know, we might think, well, how could they do that? How could they be in the presence of the great I am and say, oh, we have a great problem? When they should be saying, we have a great provider. But I think before we get too hard on them, we should look in our own hearts. Are we ever like that? Have we seen the Lord care for us? Have we seen the Lord provide for us? Have we seen the Lord answer our prayers? Have we seen the Lord deliver us? And we get into the very next problem, and what do we do? Well, God, where are you? What am I going to do? This is a great problem I can't overcome. It's at that point, we just turn back to the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Forgive me for my lack of faith. Forgive me for my lack of obedience. Thank you that your grace is lavish. Thank you that the gospel is true. Thank you that we've been forgiven and restored. So we can remember that. And the next time we face a problem, and it will come, that the Lord is a great provider. And we might wish that this would be the last time that Jesus has to confront the lack of faith on the part of the disciples. But in very short order, he's going to have to do it again. And it will involve bread. Well, I say, look, did you not see these two events that I've done? Why are you so worried about bread? And he's going to have to correct themselves. Now, I think I can understand the disciples a little bit because, remember, we've talked about how Jesus is totally flipping upside down. Their understanding of cleanliness and clean and washing and, and what makes us clean and unclean by how we eat. And they're still dealing with that. Because Jesus has said the traditions of the elders goes out because the Messiah is here. And they're still struggling with that. And then Jesus drags them to Gentile lands and heals a Canaanite woman. And now here he is feeding these, these Gentiles. And they're, they're wrestling. They're still trying to come to grips with what does this mean now for us going forward? How are we to live out this new truth that we have been given in Christ? Will he really do among the Gentiles what we saw him do among the Jews? They're still confused. But after their confusion, we see the contented masses, the contented masses. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And They said, seven and a few small fish. Once again, here we are in a desolate place and in need of the Lord to provide for a great group of people. Once again, the Messiah comes as he came to the Israelites in the wilderness and fed them on their sojourn. So the Lord comes in the wilderness to take care of his people and to feed them, those who come to him. He finds out how much they have and he directs them to sit down on the ground. Now this sounds very similar to what we have seen already in the feeding of the 5,000, two small changes. They're not sitting on grass, they're sitting on the ground. But secondly is the word to sit itself. It has a similar meaning to what we saw in the word that was used in, in Matthew 14. But the one here Specifically means to recline at table. The Lord is about to serve a feast, and the Lord is inviting these Gentiles to come and recline at the table symbolically with their Master, with their Savior. And as He invites them to sit, He prepares the meal. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And Jesus took what was available and used it for his glory. It's a reminder that we can do that. This was a very meager uh, provision, seven loaves and a few fish. You recall that um, one person at one meal would eat several of these little tiny loaves. And so this provision was very small in the face of a very large group. But Jesus takes the meager rations that they have and uses them for his purpose. And ultimately, my friends, what do we have before the Lord that could be considered anything other than meager. Because he's the creator of it all. He's the giver of it all. He's the sustainer of it all. So whatever he has given to us, all he is saying is, look, show that you trust me. Show that you love me. Make what I've given you available back to me so that I can use it to be a blessing and glory and uh, glorify my name and to provide for the needs of others. And a great privilege that we have is to make the resources that we have been given available back to the Lord for kingdom purposes. You've heard me use this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating. There's a big difference between a river and a reservoir. And a reservoir, in many situations, just receives, just receives, just receives. And if there's no outlet and there's no outflow, oftentimes in a reservoir, the water becomes unusable or there's a stench that rises from it. Whereas a river, of course, there's input and output and the flow and the blessings just keep going. And I think you understand which one were to be in the Christian life. That if we have been given blessings and they've flown into our lives, we're allowed them to flow out to be that blessing to other people. But if we just continue to accumulate and to keep and accumulate and to keep, well, what happens to water that sits stagnant for a while? Let's not be stinky Christians, okay? Let's let the Lord flow through us with his blessings and be blessings to other people. If he has given us so graciously and lavishly, let's make it available for others. There's such a joy in being involved in his kingdom purposes. Well, Jesus raises the elements. He prays over them. He literally gives thanks. Breaks up the bread, we are told. You can read the text, gives it to the disciples who gives it to the crowd. Jesus is the one that is performing the miracle, but notice how he accomplished it through his disciples. Give what you have to the Lord, including yourselves, and allow him to work in and through you to be blessings to others. So the disciples were actively involved in being instruments of the Lord's blessings to this crowd on that day. And what a blessing it was. And they all ate and we're satisfied. Don't let the familiarity of the story cause you to see just the wonder of it. As the baskets are being passed out and they're being passed around, people are taking and eating, eating as much as they can, and we find that they are all satisfied. How could they not be satisfied? It's the Lord that's providing. In a symbolic sense, they were satisfied No, in a real sense, they were satisfied, and in a symbolic sense, we can be satisfied at every moment of every day because we continually dwell in the presence of the Lord. And Psalm 16 reminds us, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to have a dynamic, a wonderful, a hopeful, a joyful, filled life. Dwell in the presence of the Lord. He's already here with us. Enter into fellowship with him, intimacy with him. Encourage him to guide and lead you. Speak to him, talk with him, and you'll find that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There is unending blessings that the Lord gives. So here's the question. We're thankful for the gifts, but are we thankful for the giver? We love the provisions. But do we worship the provider? Years ago, I learned this saying from Pastor John Piper that has really symbolized, I would, I would hope, and energized my own life in ministry, and it's this simple saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And if I'm satisfied in the Lord, in his presence, in his goodness, as his abundance is overflowing in my lives to the intimacy of his spirit... He's glorified. And we find that we are satisfied in Him. This crowd that has been praising Jesus for all of the miracles that they are seeing, it's hard not to imagine now that they are praising Him for not only the healings, but now the provision. Their stomachs are satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Notice they began with seven baskets loaves and they ended with seven baskets and that was after everybody had been filled up and satisfied and was ready to go and there was leftovers you cannot give the lord if you give for his right purposes for his kingdom for his glory that's for a blessing to other people we will rejoice in how he is being lavish to others just as he has been lavish to us we will glorify him for his gracious provision to others because we enter into the joy of him taking care of his children. And I pray that that would be challenging to us this week, that we would just rejoice in how God is blessing and using other people, how he's working in their lives, how he's growing them, how he's providing for them, how he's teaching them, how he's guiding them, how he's loving them. And we just have our hearts open and say, Lord, provide for your people and get great glory, and may we be joyful in you all along the way. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region in Magadan. Now, this is the only time this word is mentioned in the New Testament. It's probably a deriv- derivative of the name Magdala, which was a fishing center in the Gennesaret region on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And if, in fact, it was Magdala, then it was the hometown of Mary the Magdalene, Mary of Magdala the one who had become a devout follower of Jesus and out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. So Jesus crosses back over to the Sea of Galilee and he arrives now on the western side of the the sea. He has left Gentile areas, he's going back to Jewish areas and upon his arrival and what we will see next week, he's almost immediately accosted by the religious leaders, this time by the Sadducees joining the Pharisees. We're going to look at that story next week but let's summarize what we have seen in chapter 15, as we look at who, Matthew, uh, who Jesus is according to Matthew, we see that Jesus is the Savior for the nations. He's the Savior for the nations. He has performed these two wonderful miracles, of feeding of the masses with a few loaves and a few fish, one for mainly Jewish people, one for mainly Gentile people. He's showing he is the Messiah. And the feeding of the 5,000 were mainly jews there were 12 baskets left over one for each of the 12 disciples this would have been an amazing discipleship lesson that he is the bread of life he's the new manna as he has said It would be a symbol of the covenant community that is being formed in his name as he is the ultimate focus now and hope of the prophets he's the ultimate seed of abraham he's the bread of life he's the ultimate son of god he, in fact, is the true focal point of all that God is doing now and His covenant work on earth. And all who believe in Him are in that great covenant community. Well, with the, with the Gentiles, there were seven baskets left over, and there's some discussion about what they would mean, but just we simplify it by there were seven fish, and there were seven baskets. That means Jesus, uh, Jesus is able to perform miracles that just abound and have great provision for what we give to him. He came to save people from all different types of backgrounds. He came to show that he is the the bread of life for all who believe in him. And these crumbs that were pleaded for, that fell from the table of the master, are starting to grow to be this abundance of bread that will provide for even the Gentiles, for all who come to him for eternal life, to the Jew and to the Gentile both as they come in faith will find that Jesus is the healer, the provider, the teacher, the Lord, the bread of life. He's compassionate. He receives all who come to him. He should be proclaimed to all. And that is our goal and our mission and our mandate today is to proclaim him to all nations and calling all nations to faith and repentance for he's the Messiah. Secondly, he is the God of Israel and beyond. We've seen that in the Gentiles, they, they gave glory to the God of Israel, and it was just and good for them to do that. But as the kingdom of heaven expands, the praises of the Lord go beyond the borders of just one small country. Yes, as we saw last week in the mystery and the history of God's plan of redemption, that the promises had to be fulfilled to Israel first because they were given to Israel first. But there's anticipation in the pages of the New Testament that it'll burst beyond and it'll go to the nations and so that all of the prophecies of how the gospel and the word of God will be proclaimed throughout all the world will happen. And so as the kingdom is being proclaimed and it's expanding, it's it's overflowing into other nations and these crumbs that fall from the master's table become the bread of life that feed all who come to the Lord, even those who come to be saved for eternity. And so let all who hear his voice come to him and believe and receive and repent and eat the bread which gives eternal life. Because all this still is just preparing us for that great and glorious day one day when we are told that all of the redeemed from all the nations from all the time will sit at the table of the Lord and dine with him forever and how we look forward to that day. That is our great hope that we will dine in his presence with eternal joy forever. Jesus is the Lord of the Jews and the Lord of the Gentiles. He's a compassionate, kind, gentle Savior, but almost repent and believe. There's no second route. There's no shortcut. There's no alternative path. There is no biblical GPS that will say, oh, you can take this alternate route. There's just one, and it's Jesus, and he bids all come and enter into the Father's house. But the only one that can do that is whose heart has been transformed by an encounter with the living God. Only that transformed heart that is able to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, only the, the transformed heart is able to worship the Lord and say, yes, I believe, yes, I've received, Yes, I will walk and follow you. What heart do you have today? What is your heart before the Lord? Consider seriously that question because it's an important one both for today and tomorrow and for all of eternity. Now next week, after a brief period of ministry among the Gentiles, Jesus is going to return back to Jewish lands and he's going to enter into conflict with the religious establishment. And this is going to provide an opportunity for him to correct their misunderstandings about the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven, its nature, who he is. And it will provide teachable moments for his disciples. We'll see how they do. But you'll have to come back next week to see that passage. But what are some lessons we can take away in the meantime from today's sermon? Well, because Jesus is able to heal all who come to him, We will bring those we know to him and present their needs. We make no demands. We make no commands. We come humbly and say, Lord, if you will, you can touch and heal. But, of course, the ultimate healing is the healing of our soul, forgiveness of our sins, peace with God forevermore. Secondly, because Jesus does great things, we will not hesitate to praise him for his goodness and his mighty acts perhaps this week we can be praying for ourselves, Lord, open our eyes to see the greatness of your works, the greatness of your wonders, so that we can praise you all the more. Because it's not just a, a chorus that we sing, Jesus does great things, it is the reality of the one we serve. Thirdly, because Jesus is compassionate to all, we ask him to teach us how to be likewise with those around us. He's being very patient with his disciples as he is teaching them how to respond more like he would. And we need that same grace and that same patience, but he is willing to give it. Let's ask for it. Oh, God, give us the same heart that you have towards those around us. And lastly, because only Jesus can ultimately satisfy us, we go to him with our true and desperate needs. And then only in him can we find fullness of joy. And really it is my prayer for all of us that we would know what it is to have fullness of joy in the presence of God as we go to him with our needs, as we bring the needs of others to him, as we wait in patient expectation for him to move. And so this week, let us ponder then what he can do as our great God and compassionate Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we're so weak, we're so limited, we're so in need, and yet we just want to worship you, we want to serve you, we want to love you, and we know it depends completely upon you. So Lord, would you not only remind us of who you are, would you empower us to serve you, Would you remind us to worship you? Would you cause our hearts to rejoice in your presence? And we thank you, Father, that you have sent a Son who is such a Savior that that great goodness and mercy reached even unto us. And so, Father, let us not grow weary. Let us not grow angry. Let us not grow distant, but keep our hearts aflame with the wonder of Christ and we might serve you well. And this week, Father, as we go out, give us eyes to see the needs around us. Give us a heart that breaks for the needs we see. And give us minds to remember to pray and to intercede and to bring these needs to you. And give us lips ready to praise you when you provide. So we thank you, Father. Thank you that you are good. And thank you for teaching us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.